You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Hello, I'm Morris. I'm one of the team of elders here at Hope Church Ipswich. Uh, my particular responsibility in the team is representing uh, the mission of, t- of the church to the nations, particularly Europe. Our vision is to make Jesus famous in Ipswich and the nations. And so I'm really sort of thrown out by the church, representing the commitment and heart of, uh, of our church for the mission of God to the ends of the earth and trying to drag as many of you with me as possible on that. So it's wonderful to be here and have the opportunity to uh, open the Word of God together. Um, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel. Uh, we've called this series a Gospel of Hope. And we're going to be looking at an account today which is rich with hope. Uh, for the greatest to the least. And so uh, very shortly we'll be turning in our Bibles to Luke chapter 8. But um, just by way of introduction, our message today concerns events, remarkable events that took place in a small village called Capernaum. In the days of Jesus, Capernaum was a, a small fishing village, perhaps 1,500 people. It had a synagogue uh, we read that it was uh, the hometown of Matthew, the tax collector. Simon Peter lived here. And uh, we understand that Jesus himself, uh, for much of his adult life and ministry, based himself in this tiny town of Capernaum. And the Bible recounts many things that took place right in the town there. He healed many. Jesus healed many, including people possessed by demons, including on the Sabbath, Um, The Roman centurion's servant, uh, that healing took place in Capernaum. Peter's mother-in-law with a fever. Um, Capernaum is where a bunch of guys lowered their paralyzed friend through uh, the roof of a building so that he could be close to Jesus. Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum when he made these amazing statements that he was the bread of life from heaven that caused such unrest among the Jews there. In fact, he was causing so much disruption that in some parts of the region he wasn't able to travel. He couldn't travel to Judea because uh, they were plotting to kill him there. And so all these things were were taking place in Capernaum. It's a lot of drama for a small town of 1,500 people. (coughs) A couple of years ago, I stood in Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And I tried to picture some of these amazing events that factually took place right where I was standing a couple of thousand years before. And I I just want to say, if you've not had the chance to visit Israel, um, if the, the possibility arises, promise yourself that you'll take the opportunity to go and visit Israel one day. It's our king. It's from Israel. You can stand in the towns and the streets where the events you've read about all through your Christian life actually took place. I would avoid the shrines. They're not particularly credible, but go to the places that haven't moved much in 2,000 years, the towns, the streets, the, the stretches of water, the mountains, and just stand where the things that you've read about actually happened. It's not a fairy tale. These things took place. It was one of the most moving and enriching experiences of my walk with Jesus. And it is in Capernaum that the events we're about to study now took place. So let's turn to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to pick up the account at verse 40. 
And here we go. So now, when Jesus returns, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. They'd heard, they'd witnessed all these amazing things that have been happening. And then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So let's pause there. Let's remind ourselves who was Jairus. Jairus was a leader of the synagogue right there in Capernaum, the very synagogue where Jesus had been teaching and healing and causing all sorts of disruption. He'd be aware that Jesus was causing ripples across the nation, upsetting the status quo, challenging the religious authorities of the day. Maybe he was one of those responsible for settling the Jews down when they were upset by what Jesus was doing and saying. You know, he would be seeing Jesus perhaps as something of a threat to the established order, someone to be wary of. And Jairus was a man, uh, we know, of privilege and status. He was powerful. He represented the upper class. He was part of the elite. He was at the center of the social and political community of the day. But Jairus' only daughter was close to death. And when a father or a mother is in that sort of situation, nothing else matters anymore. Nothing else matters. Nothing more could be done. And yet here was a man, a rabble-rouser in the eyes of the religious authorities, who was healing people in his own town, people he would have known about. He would have heard the first-hand accounts, people he probably knew personally, who'd been delivered of demons and healed. They knew the families. There's only 1,500 people. Here was a man in his own town who was healing people. And suddenly, forget status and pride. Forget religious sensibilities. Forget all the disputes and arguments about the law and Moses. Forget what other people might think or say. My daughter is dying. And here is a man who is offering hope. Here was hope. Nothing else matters anymore. Jesus represented the last hope for Jairus and for his daughter. And in an act of beautiful, wonderful humility, he falls to his knees at the feet of Jesus and begs him to come to his house. At this point, the account continues. So continuing on in verse 42, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and she touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. We read about this account in several of the Gospels. We get more of the story as you read the parallel accounts in the other Gospels. Here was a woman who was desperately, desperately ill, suffering from a continuous flow of blood, for 12 years, and she must have been extremely weak, uh, financially impoverished from many futile consultations with many doctors we read in other accounts, unable to participate in communal life due to her ritual impurity. She is now broke, getting worse, and she is desperate. It's often assumed that this flow of blood would have meant that she was also unable to bear a child, so she had no status 
in the society on this account. So while we see Jairus, who is at the very center, this unnamed woman was at the very edge of the social and political community of her day. She was a ritual and social outcast, marginalized and despised. But here was hope. Jesus represented hope for her, perhaps her last hope. We know it was her last hope. If only she could just reach out and touch the hem of his cloak. And verse 45, who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. The woman was not healed by superstitious reverence. She was not healed just by sort of by association with someone who was powerful and a celebrity and well-known. Spiritual power, the power of the Holy Spirit left Jesus and the woman was healed. She was healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later on and how that's important for us today. So then, in verse 47, the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother, don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother Jesus anymore. She's dead. And hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, now don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. And when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he didn't let anybody else go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. And meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And her spirit returned. And at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them, Give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus said, she is not dead, but asleep. Now, the cultures in these days, they knew death when they saw it. Okay? We are, in our culture, we're very much hidden from death. Death happens out of our view. It happens out of our sort of uh, arenas, in hospital wards and care homes. That's where death happens. We're not acquainted with death in the way that these people were acquainted with death. Many children didn't make it to childhood. They knew what a dead child looked like. They had to deal with their own dead, personally handle their own dead, who died from disease or injury or old age. 
in uh, King James, it says they, about this account, it uses these words. It says, they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. They scorned Jesus. They mocked, what a stupid thing to say. We know a dead body when we see a dead body. They scorned Jesus. We'll come back to that a little bit later also. We, we live in an extraordinary season. I've never lived through a year like this. We're not even halfway through yet. And the world is looking for answers to many questions. And in this narrative, in this account from Luke 8, where Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman, we can see how people from the very greatest to the very least found their answers, found their hope when they reached out to Jesus. Reach, Jesus reaches out to the most powerful and the most despised in our communities. The message of hope is for the most powerful and the most despised, those at the center, those at the rim. Jesus was their only hope, and he did not disappoint. So what can we learn from this? How can we apply this to our daily Christian walk? Well, I've got three things I just want to uh, uh, visit as a, a response, if you like, to what we've just been reading. So number one, I would say this, particularly in this day that we're walking through, of amazing societal and political upheaval and the way that's been presented in the media, the way that's been re-presented in social media. First of all, I would say check that your gospel is not being politicized. So uh, what do I mean by that? Well, all the events in recent months have left their mark. And if I'm absolutely honest, I've been a bit ashamed at times at how our culture my own culture, my own British culture is responding to these events and even how dear Christian brothers and sisters have been responding. So we see a member of the political elite is scandalised for driving across the country for the sake of their child. And I read mature, sensible Christians writing how this makes us hate him all the more. That can't be right, can it? That can't be the response of gospel-shaped people. A man is killed by brutal police treatment. And I see Christian brothers and sisters writing, well, he was a criminal anyway. That's, that's, not, that's not the response of gospel-shaped people. You know, we don't want to be squeezed into the world's mold of allowing your gospel to be unwittingly politicized. You know, maybe uh, you're a bit left-leaning, maybe you're a bit right-leaning, Maybe you sort of despise the elite in your heart without even realizing it. Maybe you're overlooking those who are despised, the marginalized, almost you feel, well, they are perhaps, you know, they deserve it, you know. Um, and we have to be honest with ourselves about these things, okay? You know, no one deserves the healing of Jesus. And everyone deserves the healing of Jesus. This is not a gospel of preference. This is the gospel of hope for everyone, from the greatest to the least. There is nowhere else for them to turn. There are no other answers in this world. Political reform, social reform, none of these things. Re-educating, none of these things. It's a broken world. And the human heart is sick. And the human heart needs the gospel from the greatest to the least, from those at the centre to those in the rim. And we are 
like Jesus, we don't show any favoritism. We're not going to politicize our gospel. We just want to beware an unconscious bias and an unwitting favoritism in our own inner hardwired narratives. Let's be careful not to politicize our gospel. Joshua had an encounter with Jesus. And he asked him, so Joshua is representing the people of God. He's representing the people of Israel. And he meets this, uh, uh, the, the commander of the hosts of heaven. It's Jesus. And he says to Jesus, you know, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And we know <laughs> Jesus just gives the greatest answer. He just says, well, neither, actually. Jesus isn't on someone's side, you know. He's on the side of righteousness and justice. But he's not, he's not, he doesn't belong to anybody. He doesn't belong to a political party. He doesn't belong to a social group or a racial group. This is the king. He's above all of that. And we are his servants and his ambassadors. We're above all of that. We're above all of that. So let's just be careful not to find ourselves being drawn into some sort of unconscious, politicized bias or preference. The gospel is for everyone, and we are here for everyone. So secondly, what can we learn from this? I would say we must pursue the power of God. Of course we're pursuing Jesus. Of course we're shaped by his word. But... We long for the same power of the Holy Spirit with which Jesus ministered and which he felt left him when the woman touched his garment. This same power is poured out for us to minister the gospel today. God is not expecting us to minister without power from heaven. Wait and the power of God will come. Don't go until the power of God comes, Jesus said to his disciples. God's power is the resource of heaven to bring people to hope in the gospel of salvation through Christ Jesus. Not for our glory, not for our celebrity, not for our fame, but for his glory and for his celebrity and for his fame. Some people say the power of God is not for today because now we have the Bible. We love the Bible. Everything we do here, everything we teach and everything we do is shaped by the word of God. We are a word-shaped people. Jesus is the Word of God. He's the Bible on legs. He is the Word made flesh. And yet God clothed him with power from heaven by the Holy Spirit for his ministry on earth. If this was necessary for Jesus, it must be necessary for us. Is it not so much more the case for us? Some people say, well, the power of God was just for those apostles that walked with Jesus. Well, in Acts 10, we, we read how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all. That's one of the ways Jesus is described. Anointed with the Holy Spirit and power and went around doing good and healing all. This is Jesus. Earlier in Acts 6, we read about Stephen. He wasn't one of the apostles. You know, he, he was uh, a, a faithful man. This is how he's described. In Acts chapter 6, he was a man full of faith 
and of the Holy Spirit, a man full of God's grace and power, who performed great wonders and signs among the people. These are the exact same words that describe the ministry of Jesus. And here is a guy responsible for care of the poor and widows in the church. He's like the, the, the Mark Crawley of the Jerusalem church. And like Mark, full of wisdom, full of power, full of grace. Now clearly this power was not just for the apostles. And of course in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How often do people just take one half of that verse and overlook the other half? Jesus isn't expecting us to go on this mission to take his gospel to the ends of the earth without resources from heaven. He said, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you power for this mission. You can't do it without the power of God. I came in the power of God, says Jesus, and now I'm, I'm going to make sure that you go in the power of God and you're going to go on and do more than I did, he said. However you want to interpret that, I have my own ideas. So it is the intention of Jesus. We are given heavenly resources to outwork a heavenly vision. It's the intention of Jesus that every believer would be clothed with power from on high. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is ongoing and necessary. Every aspect of Christian endeavor is associated biblically with the need to be saturated with the power of God. I could spend all day talking about this. The power of God persuades us that God will fulfill his promises in Romans 4. The power of God enables us to lead the unsaved to Christ, it says in Romans 15. It's an all-surpassing power, greater than any other power uh, in, heaven, you know, in heaven and under, uh, heaven and in earth and under earth. There's an all-surpassing power in 2 Corinthians 4. The power of God shields us from sin. Galatians 5, it reveals Christ's love for us. Ephesians 3, how, it says, I, God says, I, Paul says, I want you to have power so that you will know how wide and deep and, and far is the love of God for you. For us to know, the power is poured out so that we would know the love of God for us. It fuels our intercessions in Ephesians 3. It provides us with everything we need for life and godliness. I could go on and on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The power of God gives us inner strength and weapons to fight the enemy. So we might ask ourselves, why don't we see so much of the power of God today? I think it's a good question. I don't think we're seeing the power of God in the way that we're reading about it in the New Testament narratives. And yet the expectation is that as the church of Jesus Christ, we will be people of power just as we read in those accounts. I don't know, maybe it's because we live in a very cynical culture. Our culture is cynical about the supernatural. We're trained from birth to believe that science has an answer for everything, that you know, that which cannot be explained, it can't possibly be because of some sort of spooky God. There has to be some scientific explanation. So we're conditioned from birth in our culture to hold the supernatural with deep suspicion. We've got to push past that somehow. There's a, a poor spiritual atmosphere in our country. We've rebelled against God and we are rebelling. And in, even in half of my lifetime, we've seen that rebellion uh, take on a greater and greater form. Uh, you know, Jesus was not able to minister in some places because he said, well, there's no faith here. 
Well, I think we're in a culture that has abandoned its faith. And maybe that's why we're not seeing so much of the operation of the power of God. I don't know. I'm just trying to answer this question because we should be seeing the power of God. Maybe there's an addiction to, to celebrity and fame in our culture. When someone suddenly shows that they have some anointing of the power of God, all of a sudden they become, they become revered, not the king, but them. They become a celebrity. They become wealthy. They buy a jet to go around the world so that they can bring the power of God to people. And people treat them like Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's a bit like, um, you know, you're careful what, what you, you know, I wouldn't give a power drill to a six-year-old, you know, because they're not ready for it. They're not ready. They don't know how to handle it. They'll probably hurt themselves uh, or someone else or cause some damage, you know. You don't do it. So, you know, maybe God holds some things back from us because we're not ready for it. I just wonder. But what I do know is this, that the world needs an outpouring of the power of God. My town needs an outpouring of the power of God. I need an outpouring of the power of God. This nation needs an outpouring of the power of God. Wherever I go uh, to the other nations, in the nations of Europe, you see beautiful Jesus-following disciples who love the word of God, but they are so suspicious of the power of God because not because they don't believe it's for today, but because they've never been shown what is a mature and healthy culture of the Spirit. There's been all sorts of abuse and misuse, people abusing power. And uh, the right response to misuse or abuse is not no use, it's proper use. You know, you've heard that said. That people have abused the power of God, they've misused it. Well, the response to that isn't, well, you know, let's leave that. Well, for goodness sake, how are we going to do this without the power of God? The right response is, let's learn how to handle this in a mature way, in a healthy way. And let's make disciples in the nations who know how to handle the power of God because we cannot reach people outside of the power of God. So let's pursue the power. And then finally, we must push past the scorn. So first of all, my first concluding point was don't allow your gospel to get politicized. My second concluding point was let's pursue the power. And my final concluding point is let's push past the scorn. Our gospel is foolish to the world. It's a stumbling block. But there's no other answer. Who else can we turn to who has the words of eternal life? We, you know, we can pray that people reach a point of desperation like... The, the bleeding woman or the man whose daughter was dying. Maybe that's the answer. I don't, you know, but there is no other message we can carry. Uh, praise God for Christians who get infor- involved in political, wrong, uh, uh, political reform. I honor you and I bless you and I say, do it. Do what God has called you to do. Praise God for people who give their lives to the reform of society. Praise God for people who are staring down and, and, and calling out injustices. I honour you and I bless you. But the only answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard it said many times, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And we need to take the gospel from man to man and woman to woman and see their heart changed. See them give their heart over to Jesus, that he would create in them a new heart, that he would raise them from the spiritual dead. 
That's, that's the only, and then they can bring the values of the kingdom into the areas of influence in politics and society and governance and education and so on and so forth. But just changing rules and laws isn't going to change anything. It won't change anything because the heart is sick. And the solution to sickness, moral sickness, is the gospel. You know, people laughed Jesus to scorn. And people are going to laugh you to scorn. When we stand up and say, you know what the answer is here? You need to reach out to Jesus. They're going to laugh at us. They're going to scorn us and mock us. They already do. Our culture already does. But we have no other message. We have no other answers. And this is the only answer to the pain and the suffering and the hurt and the ills of our society. So just like Jesus, the world may pour scorn on us when we share the true words of Jesus, but there is no other way that the brokenness of our world can be healed than through the words of Jesus. And there is no other answer to the pain of our world than the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. So I just, in closing, I just, I just want to say, if you're listening to this message, wherever you are, are you, are you desperate for help? Are you out of hope and desperate for help? Like Jairus, who just threw all of his reputation to one side and begged Jesus on his knees. Like the woman who was despised and marginalized, but she made a way to reach out to touch Jesus. Are you desperate for help? Well, I, I appeal to you, reach out to Jesus. Reach out now. Humble yourself before him. Hand it over to him. He's able. He can carry this. He can carry your burden. He can deal with it. No one, there's nowhere else you can turn to in the world that can deal with it. He can deal with it. So if you're desperate for help, I appeal to you. There's no other answer to your pain than this Jesus who I have met and I want you to meet him as well. And if you are desperate to help, if your heart is bursting, I want to help. I want to do something. I want to I I see some change around here. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of seeing people in so much dysfunction and brokenness. And what can I do about this? Well, there's many things you can do. But the message from this is pursue the power of God. Don't go and minister without the power. Learn what that means. Learn what it means to be clothed with power on high in order to take the gospel of grace to a broken, helpless and harassed community. Don't go out there without the power. Pursue the power. The power that enables us and equips us to reach the elite and the despised without favour is taking this gospel of truth to our broken community. So, God bless you. I'm just going to pray now, just to close. I trust this has been some nourishment to your spirit and to your soul. Let's just pray together. Father God, where would we be without Jesus? Thank you so much that he came, took the form of a man, uh, faced all of the limitations and frustrations that we did, and then when he was baptized, you clothed him with power from on high. And he, from that point on, ministered in the power of heaven for the despised and the marginalized. He was above all of that. 
Lord God, we, we thank you that he has reached even to us and that our hearts have been transformed. You have taken us from death to life by the power of the gospel as we have reached out to Jesus for ourselves. We just pray now for anybody here desperate for help. We pray, Lord God, that they would come to understand what is there to lose. Turn to Jesus. Reach out to him. Ask him to help you. Ask him to forgive you for your own rebellion and not trusting him. Put, believe in him and you will be saved from this broken and corrupt generation. Believe in him. Put your confidence in him. And if you're here desperate to help and to make a difference, well, ask for power from heaven, not for your glory, not for your celebrity. You know, when Jesus healed uh, Jairus' daughter, he said to them, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Shh. Obviously they did because we read all about it. But, you know, he wasn't looking for celebrity. He wasn't looking for, no, he just said, no, I care for you. I've got compassion for you and I've got power from heaven and I have got hope for you. And so if we want to be people of hope, we also have to be people of power as we carry the message of Jesus to our town and to the nations. So I pray for you right now that you would know the power of God in a way that you've not known it before. Go on being filled with the Spirit of God, Paul says to the Ephesians. Go on being filled. Well, I pray right now, be filled again. Be filled again that you would know this power that protects our inner being and furnishes us with weapons for the fight. That we would be people of power moving out into a broken and helpless community and offering hope and leading people to salvation in this town and to the nations. We pray, dear Jesus, let that be so in our day. Come, we say, come Holy Spirit, come, that we will be the people of Jesus to the despised and the marginalized, offering hope and healing and a way to salvation for all we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content.